First time a group does the uh, contemplative walk that we've just done, it reveals a lot about where we have come from. So you see that there's a different kinds of walk, different kinds of people and cultures. So you have the Buddhist walk, which is, of course, the proper walk, except there is no proper way of doing it, but um, that tends to be slower. Then there is the New York walk, which is as fast as possible and uh, competitive. And then there's the uh, Italian walk, which is you've got to get as close as possible to the person in, in front of you and if possible join arms and walk with them. Then you have the Lambeth walk, the, the London walk. So, but I think we'll find as the days go um, that a natural spacing, the right kind of spacing happens. Uh, Carl Jung said that for every relationship there is an optimum distance. So not too close, not too distant. And uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see, I think. You know, when, when you're walking, just have a, a, a glance uh, every so often at the rest of the group that you are part of. And you may see that there's, you know, five or six people who are all bunched up very close to each other. And then if you're really observant, you'll notice that uh, there's a, a, a 20 meter gap between you and the person in front of you. And that might be the cause of the bottleneck further up. So you'll just become aware of, uh, of how to space, space yourself. And uh, if not, Giovanni will show you. You missed it. It's too late. <laughs> no, I was talking about spacing at the, at the walk. And I think there's going to be a, a, a there's a poem by, uh, or a song by Leonard Cohen, There's a Mighty Judgment Coming. Do you know that? There's a mighty judgment coming in the something, something in the houses of the poor. Anyway, he said, but then he says, but I may be wrong. But there is a mighty storm coming, but I may be wrong, but there is a talk about a big storm coming. To, everyone's looking forward to it, to lower the temperature. So I hope you're uh, getting into relationship to your environment. Uh, it takes time, of course, physically for the body and the neuro the neuro patterns in the brain to um, catch up with, with, with your um, body and the environment. So you get to know the neural pathways uh, around the physical environment. So I hope you're becoming familiar with it and it's becoming uh, familiar and friendly. And uh, I think um, it's something you don't have to work too much at, but it will happen quite, quite naturally. And the silence uh, that we are going to be practicing and also reflecting on um, is a very wonderful way of slightly speeding up that process of familiarization as well. 
There's a story from the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers and Mothers were a movement, a Christian monastic movement, the beginning really of the Christian monastic movement from the fourth, fifth centuries, about 450 years in the northern part of Egypt, in the deserts of Egypt. It uh, flourished and became uh, a hub, really, of Christian spirituality, just at the time when Christianity was becoming institutionalized and was becoming an official religion of the empire. So not surprisingly, there was a reaction against that and uh, a movement, a lay movement, not, not monks as we think of them today, uh, but uh, a lay movement of men and women, uh, rich and poor, young and old, who went out into the desert to seek God and find themselves, which is what happens in the desert. That's why the desert or the cave is such a powerful symbol in uh, spiritual literature of all traditions. Uh, it's in the cave or in the desert that you find yourself and you cannot find God or f truth without finding yourself. So they went out into the solitude of the desert and, but also found each other, found community, found the right way of relating to fellow human beings. Uh, so this, this is what we mean by the desert tradition or the desert wisdom. And it was from that desert wisdom that one great uh, figure called John Cassian, who had arrived there as a young man, spent about 20 years there, and then having been shaped and formed by his experience there, uh, migrated to um, the south of France and established a double monastery in Marseille. And it was there that he wrote his great work, The Conferences of the Fathers, of the Fathers of the Desert. And the two central conferences of that great work, uh, which became a foundational work of Western spirituality, um, and influenced uh, St. Benedict very, very much, so much so that Benedict instructed that the monks should listen to the conferences of Cassian every day uh, at lunch. So they were, for, for a thousand years, mon monasteries throughout Europe were um, fed a diet of, um, of, of Cassian's conferences and the wisdom of the, of the desert. And the two central conferences are on prayer, conferences nine and 10. And it was from those two great conferences on prayer that John Main recognized and recovered the teaching of meditation that has brought us here to the desert of Monte Oliveto. So um, when, it, when we speak about the desert, this is the, the living tradition that we're speaking about. One shouldn't think of it just as a golden age, because did golden ages ever really exist? But clearly it was a remarkable period. Um, and Benedict and most of the monastic tradition look back to it for, for the source of wisdom and, and re renewal, regeneration, when the tradition goes sour or becomes ossified and institutionalized again, then uh, it's often by going back to that wisdom of the desert that it renews itself. And that's very much what John Main did. So um, 
And it's there, as I say, that we find uh, the teaching of, on, on meditation. But it's a teaching that has a context. And the context is part of what we will be looking at this week. And the, the context is, could be summed up really by saying, what you want to be like at the time of prayer, you should try to be like before you sit down to pray. Makes sense, doesn't it? What you want to be like at the time of prayer, I wish I wasn't so distracted, I wish I could say my mantra more, uh, more peacefully and more continuously. Well, uh, of course, you have to do that. There's a simple work involved. You can't do it by thinking about it or listening to talks about it. You have to do it. But uh, you can prepare for those times of meditation if they are sufficiently important to you. Then, of course, they will become uh, times of your day that you come to see eventually as the most important times of your day. Now that may seem at the beginning a little, you know, too big a claim. Well, I, I know I really want to meditate. Meditation is very important to me. But I wouldn't say it was the most important thing of my day. I have to, uh, I have to look after my children. I have to uh, do my work. I have to, you know, travel, I have to do all other sorts of things. But I think you come to understand with practice what that means, that these are indeed the most important times of the day because they unify the day. They pull it into a harmony and a meaning and a, uh, uh, they give it a centeredness and a depth. So. It's important then, I think, to see meditation in its context. And we'll look a little bit through the prism of silence, what we mean by silence and why silence was so important to those early uh, desert teachers, the Abbas and the Amas, uh, the fathers and the mothers of the desert, why silence was so important to them in uh, preparing them for their primary occupation, which was this work of, of the heart. So there's a story um, of, uh, you know, during that period, at the height, it was a place of great uh, pilgrimage. Uh, people from all over the world, the known world, uh, who wanted to, it was, you know, it was a place of spiritual tourism, really, in a way. I mean, some were more tourists, some were more pilgrims, but a lot of people wanted to go there and look at them and be photographed with the monks and the mothers of the desert. Um, so there's a, there are a lot of stories about visitors to the desert, but these stories, like the Desert Father stories themselves, uh, are not just anecdotes. They are meaningful parables or they contain uh, many levels of meaning. So one of them is about a visitor to the desert who presumably found a guide, and uh, he wanted to go to visit a famous old monk of the desert called Arsenius. So his guide 
uh, took him to see Arsenius, and Arsenius was famous for being silent. <laughs> so he came to Arsenius's cell, and uh, he was introduced, and Arsenius, of course, said nothing. And uh, the visitor sat down. Arsenius continued sitting there, looked at him, and the guide, after a few minutes, said, well, I'll leave you now. And uh, you've wanted to come to see Arsenius. Uh, but by this time, the visitor was getting extremely agitated uh, with the silence of Arsenius. So he said, no, no, I think I'll come with you, actually. Uh, so he jumped up and, and left, leaving Arsenius completely unmoved either way. So then he said, well, where should we go now? So he said, well, let's go to see Abba Moses. Abba Moses used to be a, highway, a highwayman, a robber, but uh, then he was converted, and he's, uh, he's a different kind of guy. So they trekked across the desert to Abba Moses's uh, cell, and Moses, ah, great to see you. Come in, so nice. Come and sit down, have, have, some, have something to drink, have, uh, have something to eat. You must be, must be tired after your journey. So Moses uh, was really friendly and chatty and uh, convivial. So he stayed there for, for some time. And uh, then uh, he left. And then so the guide was asking him afterwards, so which one did you prefer? So he said, oh, Moses, much more, much more friendly, much more, you know, much, much easier to get on with. And then, um, but that night, the guide was uh, pondering, I may be elaborating the story a bit now, but uh, the guide was pondering the, uh, the meaning of these two personalities of the desert, both of them highly respected and esteemed for their wisdom and compassion and goodness. Uh, and he had a dream, and he saw two great boats on the river. And one of them was Arsenius, sitting there with a group of friends in complete silence, floating down the river. And in the other was Moses with a group of his friends, and they were having a great time eating honey cakes in large quantities. And this uh, story gave rise, of course, to the uh, conferences that uh, Rowan Williams gave us a few years ago at the John Main Seminar, which, a seminar that we call, or the book anyway, was called Silence and Honey Cakes. And it's a story with many levels of meaning. For one thing, you could, it clearly shows there are different kinds of personality doing the same work on the same journey. So we don't want to be too fundamentalist, too stereotypical about what is a good monk, what is a good person, what is a good meditator. Uh, different personalities. And this is something you see quite frequently uh, related in the desert literature, that you could be a doctor in, uh, this, is, this is one of the stories, you could be a doctor in, in Alexandria 
uh, caring for the sick, but making time to pray every day and caring for the people you have to care for, but living a decent and balanced life. And you are at an equal level, if this can be measured in any way, but you are equal to the most ascetical, austere uh, monk of living in the middle of the desert. So uh, it's very important to see this quality of wisdom in the desert uh, tradition. Uh, people who haven't read the stories of the, fa of the fathers of the desert or uh, have only read a few of them think they were all a bit nutty and extremist. Um, but actually, the wisdom of the desert is this wisdom of, of balance and tolerance and, uh, and compassion, something that comes over, of course, flows over into the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, I'm always happy to come back to meet my brother monks here at, at Monte Oliveto, and I, I never cease to be surprised at how nothing changes and how everything changes. And uh, it, community now is going through a, a little bit of a, 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 a resurgence of, of, uh, of novices and younger candidates arriving. Um, and when you, when you see the community, as I did just now, you see the community uh, as a whole, you, you, it's amazing the diversity of personality and uh, background and age, and there's Father Lino, who was, I think he was there at Mass, I don't know, maybe he was in a wheelchair, 97, and can hardly get around, can't get around without help, but lovingly cared for by, by um, Dom Hugo and others, and uh, the young monks, you know, who have... Um, different things to talk about than the older ones. So uh, it, it's the richness of the diversity of uh, personality and background and interest and IQ and artistic qualities and gifts and so on. The great diversity which is reflected in the, traditionally in the Benedictine uh, community. Uh, but that flows directly from this golden age of of the desert, which also represented a great tolerance uh, of uh, personality and uh, different ways to the same goal. So that's one uh, reading of the story that Ab uh, Arsenius and Moses uh, are not in competition with each other, they're just being themselves. And that's the meaning of wholeness or the meaning of holiness is not to imitate anybody else, not to imitate Mother Teresa or St. Augustine or anybody, but to be yourself. You can be inspired, of course, by other people, but you don't imitate them. You may take on some of their characteristics unconsciously, but uh, you don't consciously imitate them in order to be like them. They inspire you to be just like yourself, which is part of the whole purpose of going to the desert in the first place, or sitting to meditate every day. So there's that. Then, but there's also, I think, the, uh, the, the, the meaning 
of uh, the need for balance. Because in terms of the whole spirituality of the desert, you need times uh, for silence, times where you don't speak to guests, times, unless there's a pressing need, uh, times where you voluntarily, as we are this week, control our normal chatty uh, temperament, the way we fill up the silences with unnecessary words. Uh, if we only spoke this week what it was necessary to say, we would feel very healthy afterwards. It would be like eating very well, which we also will do this week. Uh, so there's a need for silence, but there's also the need for honey cakes. Times where we relax and enjoy, uh, enjoy the, the honey cakes. Um, but the silence is no less enjoyable. We shouldn't think of the silence as being some kind of uh, deprivation that we're putting ourselves through in order to give ourselves a reward of extra, extra portion of honey cakes. That is a, pretty much a definition of addiction, isn't it? You know, I'll deny myself this, but so I can have a double helping of it later. Like ordering a double McDonald's hamburger with a Diet Coke. You know. so, so in terms of one's own life, I think the story also points to the need for a rhythm of silence, a discipline of silence, but also a delight in silence. This may be a taste we have to reacquire, but it's a taste that is natural to us, as we can see from children who live today extremely noisy, mentally distracted and agitated inner lives, and when they're given the opportunity by a good teacher to meditate in the class, they embrace it wholeheartedly. They love to meditate. They love to be silent. And it's not for any other reason than that they like it. They don't think it's good. Well, they don't think. I don't think. They don't think it's good for them, although as as they get older, then they reflect upon the meaning of their experience. They do say, yes, I like it. Or the little girl who said, I said, when do you, do you meditate at home? And she says, yes, I meditate at home. I said, when? She said, if I have a fight with my sister, then I meditate. Well, what a great insight. She, she hasn't thought about it yet, but she knows that when she has a fight with her sister, she's unhappy. Nobody likes, really, likes to be in a state of conflict and unresolved, you know, tension with someone. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, Saint, the Bible says. Um, so she knows that when she's had a fight with her sister, the sooner she meditates and recovers a balance within herself, the better, the better for her. As she gets older, she'll reflect more, of course, about what that means, but let's not put questions into her head before she's ready to ask them. So, so we need silence and we need honey cakes, and this retreat gives us a little bit of both.
but let's not confuse them. The silence uh, of the retreat of the day and the rhythm of the day and the honey cakes, if you like, in the evening. Uh, these are natural complementary activities, but they, only, they will work best if we respect their complementarity. So that's why after Compline, we go back into silence. So, the recognition of that need for balance, a time to be silent, a time to speak, time for silence, a time for honey cakes, is what the desert teachers called discretion. Discretion, they said, and Benedict says also, is the mother of virtue. There's a lot of uh, reflection going on in the public sphere at the moment and in corporations and universities about values. I think we're generally conscious that public life, both in economic and financial institutions and in educational institutions and in most obviously in political institutions, uh, something has gone wrong. Values have been quite terribly disrupted. And that's becoming more and more undeniable. But it's very easy to talk about values. It's not so easy to live values. It's very easy to adopt certain values, but then you suspend them when it's convenient. So you say you, one of your values is transparency and honesty. But then a particular situation arises at work or with your company or in your private life, and you say, well, I know I am committed to, 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 um, to transparency, but I think we should just brush this one under the carpet and hope it will go away. So the great challenge is not just to identify values, but to know how to live them. So that like that little girl, CEOs or politicians will know as well as that little girl knows what is the right thing to do at the right time. She knows it's the right thing to meditate when she's had a fight with her sister. How do we know that this, is, this or that is the right thing to do in these particular circumstances? And it's not about legislation or regulation so much. The rule of St. Benedict, for example, and the monastic, uh, the wisdom of the desert is full of discretion, of, of flexibility, of exceptions to the rule. Because, you know, you, if you start operating just by regulation, you're, you're basically just running a police state, you know, it's just it's like getting a speeding ticket. And it very easily leads to corruption. Corruption of your own mind or corruption of the relationships within the organization. So we have to, have, we have to trust this deeper virtue and virtue is the source of values. Virtue is that 
interior strength, actually the word vertu means strength, and it is a combination, of course, of what we might call values or virtues, like justice and so on. But uh, it is actually not definable. Virtue is experiential. And the experience of virtue that gives discretion is uh, the experience or the discovery and the acceptance of our own goodness, of our own essential goodness. And that is what we find in silence. The loss of this spiritual intelligence, this, which is also underlies emotional intelligence, this quality of discretion to know when and what to do and how to do it. Losing this, in, this kind of intelligence, this kind of discretion, in modern technological society uh, is more and more obviously causing our problems, I would say. And when you go from a modern technological, affluent, fast-moving, distracted, uh, unbalanced uh, society to a more traditional society, less affluent, with its own big problems, but uh, not as caught up in the rat race or in the speed game, not knowing when to stop, not knowing when to slow down, which is characteristic of the worlds that most of us are familiar with. When we come out of that kind of world and we find ourselves in a more traditional uh, society with less affluence and yet more wisdom, more discretion, we seem to ourselves very childish and shallow compared with them. Now we have to be careful, and I think that's, uh, I, I, we have to be careful not to, you know, uh, uh, romanticize those traditional societies. They can often be controlled by deep levels of fear and corruption as well. Nevertheless, there's something in their culture and in their way of interacting and in the traditions that they have maintained that we have lost and that we can have made us, by comparison, rather more childish and self-centered and more shallow about the meaning of life. And if you think that we spend 80% of our healthcare costs on the very last stages of life, we've lost the understanding that death is not a failure. Death is natural. Suffering can also be a teacher if, it is, if we can be accompanied through the suffering of the last stages of life and held in love. Or if we have a, 
a, a decent society which cares professionally for those who don't have people to care for them. Isn't that the meaning of social care? If you don't have, if you don't have someone to care for you as you need to be cared for, then a decent society would provide that care for you. So, uh, so our, our loss of wisdom you know, underlies our, some of our most absurd and self-contradictory institutional um, crises. It is this intelligence of the heart, this wisdom, this uh, discretion, that yields us the wisdom about how to live and how to respect our own humanity and that of others. So the desert uh, tradition clearly had this wisdom and it's still available to us. In the desert uh, tradition, this is a wisdom that cannot be packaged. So they didn't write a book saying the seven secrets of desert success or how to meditate in six easy lessons. Um, so it can't be packaged, but it does have to be transmitted, shared, is the word probably that we would use that comes closest to it. It's not spoken down to people, but it is caught. John Maine used to say the mantra is caught, not taught. It's something that requires both a, someone to transmit it in some way, preferably by example rather than by preaching, but it also needs a receiver, somebody who can be tuned into it and is looking for something. So one of the most characteristic stories of the desert tradition uh, is where a younger monk comes to an older one and says, Father, give me a word. And it's a poignant, it's a poignant appeal, really, because um, what are they saying? It's, it's, it's almost like a child. It's not the same, but it's a little like a child that needs comforting that will just run to its mother or father and ask for a hug. Well, this isn't, uh, it's not about emotional consolation so much, but it's, it has the same natural appeal and hunger for wisdom. What it's saying is, I'm in a bit of a mess at the moment my mind is all over the place. I can't sit in my cell. I can't meditate anymore. I'm getting into some bad habits. Can you help me? Can you give me a word? I don't want, you know, a six-month course, but just give me a word. And this word is a, is a living transmission of wisdom and compassion. It's care in its deeper sense. It's personal. And it is adjusted perfectly to the needs of the person who is asking.
It is a personal encounter. And so the desert wisdom is built on this transmission, uh, this creative and therapeutic transmission of, of wisdom. And the, 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 the teacher, the Abba, uh, well, there's one story where the Abba says, no, I won't. He said, because there's no one in the desert anymore to, to receive it. He's sort of complaining that, uh, you know, there's no, 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 no serious seekers anymore. Uh, the, the point he's making is probably that uh, this is a two-way a two-way street. It's not just writing a book and publishing the book. This is different. It's not that kind of transmission. You write a book and then it just goes out into the world and you hope it's going to do some good. But this is a completely different kind of encounter. It's very personal. It's one-on-one. It's -on -one. And it, uh, it requires uh, give and take. It, re it requires a, um, a readiness to ask, because that shows what, that you know what you, what you need, or you may not be able to define it, but you, you're, you, it shows that you're open, that you're ready, that you're hungry, and it, um, it uh, uh, connects with the experience the wisdom and the humility has to be hum humble of the person who you are appealing to. So the Desert Fathers had this wisdom. It's transmitted, it's still available to us, and we transmit it to ourselves. Not as dramatically as that, perhaps, but in our meditation groups, that's what is happening. That is exactly what's happening. That's why people often, uh, even when they're very convinced of the value of meditation for themselves, they hold back from starting a group because they want to be receivers all the time. I mean, that may not be the only reason for not starting a group, but sometimes it is. It's that they just want to be receiving, but they've actually reached a point where they can start to give. And uh, those times, you know, only you can decide, but those times come and then for your own continued growth you do need to find some way to give a word to give the word to others when they need it so what has this got to do with silence it seems to be about asking for words or a word actually they ask for a word well, I think it's all to do with silence. Silence is the medium of the transmission. Silence is the environment in which this relationship and sharing can take place. If there's no silence, there is no listening and you don't hear the word that is being spoken. You just hear noise. <laughs>